You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to see you. So glad that you're here this morning. And what a joy and a privilege it is to get to gather with the church. I mean, this is, it's a really, it's a beautiful gift. It's a grace. It's a privilege to get to sing these truths and let our hearts worship. Did you know that you were created to worship and that our hearts are always worshiping, always longing, always seeking, always searching? And what a gift it is as God's people who've been redeemed by Jesus to come into this place week by week and let our hearts worship what they were truly made to worship. Did you know that you were created for belonging, that you long, you desire to be known and to be seen and to belong? And what a gift it is to come in here week by week and belong together as God's people, as God's family, to hold up these little blessings, these, these children that God has given, new life, given life to and celebrate together as a church family. It is a gift. It is a privilege to gather together week by week. And so I'm so glad that you're here as we celebrate grace and receive mercy together. If you're a guest with us this morning, we've been in a, a series this fall where we're studying Jeremiah. So if you have your Bible open to Jeremiah, you can kind of go toward the middle and then to the right, and you'll find Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah chapter 29. And we've been studying Jeremiah for a couple of reasons. One, we, we like to preach through books of the Bible here at Redeemer, and it's just good for us to know more of our Bible. So we just get, get into the Old Testament, let's study Jeremiah, let's learn more of our Bible. But there's actually more to it than that even, although that would have been reason enough. Um, we've been praying for renewal this year as a church, that God would renew us. And so there's a component of renewal uh, anytime that we see God pours out revival or renewal among his people, pours out his spirit, there's usually a fresh awakening that comes when the people of God wake up a bit. They begin to see themselves clearly and they kind of sober up with a new seriousness about God, a new awareness of the holiness of God. And there's this awareness that maybe we've been a bit divided in our heart. We've been seeking other things, running after other things, caught up in the things of the world. And we need to return to God devote ourselves to God, renew our faith and our commitment to God, and then we're met by fresh fillings of God's mercy and fresh fillings of his spirit. And so we've been studying Jeremiah where we've seen the ancient people of God, the ancient Israelites, and how they have gotten caught up in their day. They've been gotten caught, caught up in the, the things of the surrounding nations and the surrounding cultures, and they've ignored God's word. They've grown spiritually apathetic. They've grown idolatrous. They've actually worshiped the idols of the foreign nations, and God's been trying to get their attention and wake them up and call them to return to God. And as we get to chapter 29, we find the ancient Israelites in exile. They've been exiled. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know why. We've seen God's warnings and God's word through Jeremiah. God's been telling them very clearly that there would be a foe from the north, there'd be disaster from the north that would come and that would fall upon them if they did not repent of their sin and return to God. And as we pick up in chapter 29, that foe from the north has come, and the Israelites are now living in a foreign land. And there's really a question. Here's the big question. If you're taking notes, this is the question. How do the people of God live? How do the people of God act? How do we live when we find ourselves living in a world, living in a land that does not know our God, fear our God, nor honor our God? How do the people of God live? When we find ourselves living as exiles in a world that's not our home, in a place where God isn't honored, God isn't feared, God isn't known, that's the question that we'll find an answer to in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it's a relevant question, isn't it, for us today? It's a relevant question for us as Christians who are living in a world 
that is becoming increasingly post-Christian. All that means is that the values of Judeo-Christianity are no longer are the values of the culture that we live in. How do we live? What do we do? Do we push back? Do we rage against it? What do we do? Do we retreat and hide? Do we just kind of casually sit back, passive? What do we do? It's an important question, and we'll find the answer in the text today. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into Jeremiah 29. Let's pray together. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we open your word and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you for the grace that you give us. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you call us together to come and receive your mercy and your grace, to be reminded of your truth, to feast upon your word. And so we open ourselves up to you and we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us, that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 29, let's start by looking at verse 1 and 2. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother and the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had been departed from Jerusalem. Let's stop for a second. You guys remember back at the beginning of the series, if you were here, kind of talked about this framework that helps us, one, understand the Bible, and two, live the Christian life, this top-line, bottom-line framework. Anybody remember this? No? Okay, that's fine. Uh, it's humbling as a preacher. It doesn't matter. Um, I'll tell you again, this top-line, bottom-line framework, it helps us understand the Bible, understand who God is, and it even helps us live the Christian life. This idea that there's a top-line, and the top-line is what's happening in real human history. God has chosen to reveal himself in real human history. And so that's kind of what we're getting in verse 1 and 2 is the top line. Historically, what's happened in real time in history. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes to power. And in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar expands the Babylonian empire and they kind of become the big bully on the block, if you will, in ancient civilizations. This is the top line. There's things that are happening in real human history. There are things that are happening in all of our lives. There are things that are happening in our day that we're living through real historical events. Top line. But there's also this bottom line. And the bottom line is that that we we serve and we know a God who is revealing himself in real time and real human history. That means that underneath what's happening in the top line, God is working. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is even willing at times all human history to accomplish his purposes. And so this is a good framework that helps us, but one, understand the Bible, and two, live the Christian life. We know that there are things that are happening in our lives, top line, but we can always trust the bottom line that God is working in all things. He's accomplishing his purposes, and he's working for the good of his people. And so we kind of get the top line in verse 1 and 2. We're reminded of what's happening in real human history. In 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar comes to power and he turns Babylon into a mighty empire. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar takes the, the, the throne, he's determined to become a warrior king. And so in 605 BC, immediately what Nebuchadnezzar does is he looks out over the, kind of the, 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 the landscape and he sees Assyria and Egypt, who had kind of been the, the powers of the day. Both of them are a little bit weaker than they used to be. They're wobbling a bit. Nebuchadnezzar, this mighty military warrior king, looks at them and he says, now's our time. And so in 605 BC, they invade Egypt and they take over most of the region. Babylon is on the move. Now, listen, 
Jeremiah, for years before 605 BC, has been telling Judah, bottom line. He's been talking about the bottom line. He's been saying, return to God, repent, return to God, repent. And they've been ignoring him and ignoring him and ignoring him. In fact, 605 BC, the same time that Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne, Jeremiah, the very same year, stands before King Hezekiah and he says, return to God and repent. And Hezekiah takes Jeremiah's scroll and he burns it. And then he proceeds to fill the land with all sorts of bales and worship foreign gods. This is happening at the same time, top line, bottom line. Fast forward eight years, King Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. Egypt wasn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Jeremiah's word, disaster from the north is coming. The foe from the north is on the move. Well, now disaster has come. Remember Jeremiah 18? He holds up the pot. What does he do with the pot? Shatters it. And what does he say? Destruction will come of you from the north. It happens. 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. And the first thing that he does is he deports 10,000 of the smartest, wisest, wealthiest leader types from among Judah. So there's two waves of exile. The first wave are the cream of the crop. That's what we see in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. This is, they, they take the king, the queen, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, the smartest, the wisest, the wealthiest, and the first wave is departed into Babylon. And then in 587 BC, 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar returns. They destroy the temple. They destroy um, Jerusalem. The city is in ruins. Many, many people die. There's a lot of bloodshed. And then the remaining survivors are carried off into exile. Disaster from the north has come. But God isn't done with his people. There's grace even in judgments. There's grace even in judgment. This is what's true about God. He's a sovereign redeemer. And so he has a word for God's people. He has a word for his people. Now that they find themselves in exile, they find themselves in a lot of shock and horror and fear and chaos. Imagine the disorientation if you've ever been through any kind of a massive life upheaval, suffering, trial, tragedy. You know the kind of the disorientation. Think about September 11th in our country's history. You see the sights and the scenes. Just think about the disorientation that our whole country was experiencing in the midst of all of this disorientation and shock and fear. God has a word for his people. He's going to say, this is how you live in exile. Look at verse 4. We'll read 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
By the way, Jeremiah 29.11 is more than a high school graduation verse. Um, it's actually a verse for sufferers, and mourners, exiled people of God. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. God has two primary messages for his people. And the first is this, settle in. Settle in. And this message probably came as a bit of a shocker. There would have been lots of reasons why this word from Jeremiah would not have been expected by God's people nor liked. In fact, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there were actually false voices who were saying the exact opposite. They weren't saying settle in. I mean, you get this, don't you? I mean, the people of Babylon just watched their nation, uh, the people of Israel just watched their, the Babylonians destroy their nation, destroy the things that they love, shed blood, rip apart their way of life. I mean, some of us can hardly deal with the fact that some of our values aren't the primary values of the culture anymore, and we want to rage, you know, much less watching someone destroy your whole city and your whole way of life. King Nebuchadnezzar had a plan that was very clear and very effective. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to assimilate people 100% into the Babylonian way of life so that he could stamp out any other way, so that he could, uh, it's smart militarily, actually, so if you assimilate them 100%, that's why he took to 10,000 of the smartest first, and they came back for the rest later. He took the wealthiest, the powerful first, because if he could assimilate them, chance of a revolt later on would be less likely, right? It's a smart military move. But the threat there was that they would stamp out Israel completely. And if Israel is stamped out completely, so is God's promise. It's stamped out completely, right? Remember Genesis 3.15? That promise that we stake our life on, that God through the seed of a woman would crush the head of a serpent, God would defeat sin, death, Satan, and evil and restore all things. That promise passes to Abraham and it makes this great nation, this great offspring, Israel. And here they are. The threat is that they're about to cease to exist. So you think this message of, hey, just settle in, sit back, relax, build houses. You think that message set well with them? Probably, probably not. Not at all. And so what I want to do is I want to walk back through this message to settle in and help us understand why that is actually the proper response for God's people in all times, in all places, even when we find ourselves living in exile. The first thing that we see when we look at this call to settle in is that we're to settle in to the sovereignty of God. This is really the, the primary call. Settle in to the sovereignty of God over your life. Look back at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Out of the gate, God makes it abundantly clear that what's happening around them is not surprising to him. He's saying, I'm the one who sent you into exile. I am the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar. I am the one who, I have a plan. I am the one who's purposing something in all of this. And you can trust me. You can, you can settle in because you believe who I am. Yahweh, I'm the sovereign Redeemer, I am the potter, you are the clay. You see, God's people need a regular reminder that nothing happens that happens without at first moving through the sovereign hand of God. And there is no doubt that there were many among Judah who were way too caught up in the top line, way too caught up in what was happening 
and the top line, and they needed to be reminded of the bottom line. God's basically saying to them here, stop focusing on your exile and remember and trust that you are elect, that I've chosen you, and that I've got a plan for you. And there's maybe some of us here in our life where we get way too caught up in the top line. We get way too caught up in what's going on in our world today, what's going on in news headlines, what's going on circumstantially in our individual lives. And God's saying that if you're going to live faithfully as an exile in this world, as an elect exile in this world, you've got to drink deep of my goodness and my sovereignty. What would change in your life if you settled into the sovereignty of God? Would you think about that for a second? What would change for you in your life if you really settled in to the sovereignty of God over your life? What would change for you in your life if you settled into the sovereignty of God over this day and age that we're living in? How, how much anxiety or fear or anger would you be able just to release and entrust to God? if you really drank deep of the fact that God is sovereign over all things, that he is the one who appoints the times and the kings of the world, and that in all things he is purposing something. He's not only sovereign, but he's a sovereign redeemer. What would change for you? I know that I need, I need to receive this word. There have been times over the last two years where I've needed to fight for faith, to believe and remember that God is sovereign. There have been things in my own personal life that have been going on where I've had to really trust that, God, you're sovereign right now. I can trust you, that you will work good even in these circumstances in my life that seem challenging, that seem hard, that seem impossible. There have been times in my life as a pastor over the last two years where I've needed to fight for faith, to believe this and trust in the sovereignty of God as we've kind of watched the church try and make its way through a pandemic and believe, God, you're sovereign over all times and ages and that you're purposing something in all things for your church. There have been times for me that I've needed to fight to believe this as I've watched Christians just seem to kind of trip over things that should be easy for us as the people of Jesus, things like race and racism, uh, things like sexuality and gender. If you've watched the church just fracture and splinter over politics, there have been times where I've had to really stop and fight for faith and not go to despair and thank God I trust that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, and that you're purposing something in your people right now. You're pruning your church. You're priming your church. You're preparing your church for a new day of revival. I've had to fight for faith, to trust, to settle in to the sovereignty of God. What about you? What about you? Maybe there's some of you, there's some things in your life, maybe on a more personal level, maybe some things that are falling apart. Maybe there's some things in your life where you just feel absolutely lost or disoriented. Maybe you just feel really stuck. I want to invite you to entrust yourself to the hands of a sovereign God, to settle in to the sovereignty of God over your life right now. You can trust him. You can trust him. Maybe there's some of you that feel this maybe kind of on a societal level for you. It's like, you know, you're thinking about the state of the economy right now and you get enraged or worried. Maybe you're thinking about the generation in the world that your kids or your grandkids are going to have to grow up in and you get worried and you get anxious or you get angry. What would change if you entrusted yourself to the sovereignty of God, knowing that in all things he is working for the good of his promise? You see, this is the first call that we see in the text. Settle in. Settle yourselves down and trust God. Because once we settle down and trust God, then we can live for God. We can live for God, even as exiles. Look at verse 5 through 7. 
Not only do we need to settle down and trust his sovereign goodness, but we need to settle down and live for him, settle down and flourish in him. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Um, God gives these exiles of Judah the same call that he has given his people in all times and all generations. Do you hear the echo of the garden here? Do you hear the echo of be fruitful and multiply? Do you hear that here in the text? It's essentially what he's telling them. After you settle down and trust me that I am the sovereign and that you are elect, you are chosen, be fruitful, multiply. In other words, he's saying, live for me, obey me, do the things that I've always called you to do. He says, plant your roots, build houses and live in them, settle in, live your life of worship right where I have placed you. He says, plant your garden, receive your food with grateful hearts, Get married. Raise your family in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Settle in to right where I've placed you and flourish in God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, live out the calling that I've given you right where you are. You know, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. You can live for God right where you are. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. You can obey the very basic things of loving Jesus and living for Jesus right where you are. And when God's people are faithfully living for him, right where he's placed them, even in the midst of chaos, that's how God's mission goes forward. That's how the mission of God goes forward. They're the faithful obedience of God's people, the faithful everyday obedience of God's people. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's interesting, that word welfare, it's, uh, it's very similar to the word shalom. It's used almost interchangeably to the word shalom. If you're familiar with the Bible, that's a very, very important word. In the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, what we see there, the world that God intended before sin was a world of shalom, harmony, wholeness. Wholeness with God, wholeness with one another, secure in our identity, naked and unashamed, enjoying God's good creation, stewarding it for its glory, wholeness, shalom. Sin enters into the world and everything is corrupted and broken, right? No longer is there, is there a, a, a relationship with God, but sin separates us from God. There's brokenness interpersonally, relationally. The world's a disaster. The world's a mess. He's saying settle in and flourish and seek the welfare of the city. Seek the shalom of the place where I have sent you into exile. Pray for the place that I've sent you into exile. Pray for its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's this idea of live like a city within the city. God's people are to be a, sounds familiar, doesn't it? City on a hill, a light in the darkness. That's the command that he's giving. So as we settle in and flourish in God, that flourishing in God ought to spill over for the good of our neighbors. That's the picture. God's people are to do what God's people have always been called to do, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on around us. There's a missional posture that the people of God are to take when we find ourselves living in a Babylon. And I want you to know how counterintuitive this would have been when they received this word from Jeremiah. In fact, if you have a Bible in front of you, flip over to Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible, I'll read it for you. Psalm 137, the Bible's amazing, by the way, because we get his real human history in a bunch of different angles. So in Psalm 137, the Psalms are Israel's songbook. They're their prayer book and their songbook. 
And so in Psalm 137, what we get is we get the song that they were singing as they entered into Babylon. We get the cry of their heart as they came into Babylon um, as exiles. Now I want to read to you verse 1 through 3 and then verse 8. Listen Listen to what they sing here. And I want you to think about how counterintuitive this word to seek the good of Babylon would have been. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Out of the willows, there we hung up the li- our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us some of those songs of Zion. Do you see the pain? The mourning? They're being tormented, they're being mocked. They're saying, Hey, sing about your little God. We just destroyed your temple. <laughs> sing, sing, sing those songs for us about your little God. Look down at verse 8, Psalm 137. O daughters of Babylon, they sing, doomed to be destroyed. Doom, destruction is what they wanted for the Babylonians. And yet here Jeremiah is saying, seek their good, seek their welfare, settle in, trust God, love God, live for God, bless those around you. Don't, don't, don't persecute them. Bless your enemies, don't curse them. And it's interesting if you read the book of Daniel, it seems like this word from Jeremiah eventually settled into their heart because what we see in Daniel is we see, remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, remember, remember those stories, Daniel on the lion's den? We see them kind of take this posture of settling in, trusting God, and trying to be, just be faithful to God and serve God right where God's placed them, not raging against their Babylon. It's interesting, isn't it? Did you know that this is how the first century church changed the Roman Empire? It wasn't through rebellion. It was through citizenship. It was through their good citizenship, their everyday obedience to God. They flourished in Jesus, and the gospel spread like wildfire. Did you know that this is how revival is breaking out today all across the global south? Not through rebellion, not through force, not for Christians fighting for the power seat in the culture, but through living everyday life, faithfulness, loving neighbor, blessing, not cursing, forgiving, seeking the good of the welfare, praying for their enemies. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Did you know that that's what's happening? I read a story this week about uh, Christian villages in Myanmar in Southeast Asia where um, these villages were burned down. Homes were burned down. Why? Just because they were Christians. Pastors being uh, um, hauled off and imprisoned. Why? Just because they were Christians. And you know what the story talked about? You know what those people did? These homeless and pastorless Christians it said that they put out a statement to say they forgived their enemies and they pray for them and they're going to seek the good of their neighbors. That's how the gospel goes forth in Babylon. That's how God's mission goes forward. And when we, when we find ourselves living in a world that doesn't value what we value, that doesn't know our God, that doesn't honor our God. In fact, look at verse 8. I want to, I want to look at the rest of this text and what we start to see is that God actually does his best work when things are the darkest. God does his best work when things are the dark, darkest. Look at verse, we'll, we'll close with verses 8 through 14. So we settle in and trust the sovereignty of God. We settle in and we flourish. We obey Jesus right where he's placed us. And then we settle in and we seek God with our whole heart. Look at verse 8 through 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Real quick, just a little aside. There are these false prophets that are basically saying the opposite of what Jeremiah was saying. They're false voices. 
They're unqualified voices, and God wants to make it clear. You can look at Jeremiah 27 and 28, right before this, and there's this guy named Hananiah. And Hananiah is like dueling it out with Jeremiah. He's like, oh, Jeremiah, you think 70 years of captivity? No, 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 only two years of captivity. And Jeremiah's like, hey, bro, I hope you're right. Like, I would love just two years, not 70, but you're wrong. It's basically what he's saying. And so he's saying, don't listen to these false voices. I just want to say something really quickly. In our day, in our Babylon, if you will, if we, could, if we could say that, there are so many false voices, so many unqualified voices trying to call God's people to certain different things. And I just want to make this really simple for you because there's a lot of ways in which someone could get a platform today. Usually they just need a YouTube channel or a social media platform. And they, there's these loud voices. And just hear me really quickly. It's really simple. How do you know if a voice is an unqualified false voice? It's this. If they are stirring up a frenzy in God's people rather than faith. If they are stirring God's people up to frenzy, to chaos, rather than to faith and faithfulness, just stop listening to them. Stop listening to them. Okay, back to the text. Verse 10. <laughs> for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, take that, Hananiah, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Underline that. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know, I'm the sovereign. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, for shalom, for wholeness, for healing, for redemption, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So settle in. That's what he's saying. Trust me. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Underline that. All of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What a promise. What are the people of God to do as the world around us gets darker and darker. We are to seek after God with our whole heart. Did you know that there is grace in judgment? Did you know that? On this side of the final judgment, there is grace in judgment. God is using judgment here to wake up a sleepy, stubborn, blind, deaf, cold-hearted, idolatrous people and saying, come back to me. You've been divided in your heart. You've been going after other lovers. You've been loving the things of the creation. You've been loving the power that this world can give you. Your heart is divided. And he's saying, now you're in judgment. And so wake up and see where a divided heart takes you, death and ruin and destruction, and come back to me with a whole heart. That's what he's saying. None of us can seek God with 100% of our heart. We're all fallen. He's talking about wholehearted devotion to God, not a divided idolatrous heart. There is grace even in judgment. For the ancient Israelites, this judgment in Babylon was to wake them up to what is ultimate, to restore in them a seriousness about God, to, to stir up a hunger for more of God in their lives. He's saying, don't despair the darkness. See it for what it is. Seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Did you know that the night is always the darkest right before dawn? Did you know that? Jeremiah is really dark for the first 28 chapters, amen? We've been walking through it. It gets as bright as it's ever been right here. And it's about to get brighter and brighter as we keep going. There is grace for us 
There is always grace with God. There is always hope in darkness. There is always grace even in judgment. Church, I want to call us to hear this word. I want to call us to seek after God with our whole hearts. You know that God wants the whole hearts of his people and he will do whatever it takes to capture it. And though it is not apples to apples, I think that the church today in America has a lot in common with the ancient Israelites in Babylon. It's not apples to apples, but I think there's a lot for us to learn here. It's part of the reason I wanted us to be in Jeremiah as we're praying for renewal. I think that there, in a way, you can make the case that the church in America today is experiencing some of the judgment of God. I really believe that. You think about what we have kind of watched happen over the last two years. You think about how many uh, megachurch pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor that we've seen moral failure. You think about the, the rate of decline in the church today. You think about this whole movement of deconversion, whatever you want, whatever you want to say. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, you, you know this probably better than we do, the state of the church today. I think that the church is experiencing some judgment from God right now. I think that for decades that the church in the West has been caught up in uh, spiritual apathy I think that we've slipped into cultural and political idolatry, not the whole church. I'm not talking even specifically about this church, but we are a part of the broader church. And I think that in pockets, there have been people that have loved money and comfort and big buildings. Um, we love the power seat in society more than we've loved the orphan and the widow. Think about Micah 6.8. The Bible says, what does God require of his people? That we do justice, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly. And when God's people fail to do that, God will judge his people and there's always grace and judgment. He will renew his people. He will revive his people. He will prune his people that it might bear more fruit. I would even argue that perhaps our culture at large is experiencing judgment right now. Um, let me just say it in the simplest form. Um, I think that what has happening in our culture at large is that we're witnessing all of these other kind of functional saviors or these, um, these other hopes, they're all like falling in on themselves. In other words, it doesn't, we don't have to even get into politics. Our, we're facing so many crises as a nation right now. There's just a lot of crisis. Did you know that the Greek word uh, for judgment is where we get our word crisis? Did you know that? And a lot of times sin is its own punishment. Sin punishes us. And we're bear, reaping the fruit of what we sow. Mark Sayers talks about it this way. Let me read you this quote. Mark Sayers says, our current cultural crises show us the consequences of what happens when we try and take over controls of God's world. This humanism experience isn't working. When we seek life and progress without God. Sayers goes on, he says, to the contrite of heart, to the humble, to the meek in spirit, God's presence is received as ways of love, yet to the proud, to the rebellious, the autonomous, the individual, and the systems that wish to continue Adam and Eve's rebellion, trying to be our own God, trying to discern what is good and evil in our own eyes, this, uh, to reanimate the project of Babylon, think about Nebuchadnezzar, to reach for progress without God's presence, for such people and systems, those same waves of love that are God's presence are experienced as God's judgment. What is Sayer saying? In the simplest form, this, when we try and live without God and apart from God, everything falls in on itself. The more that we seek life apart from God or apart from God's ways, the more chaos and brokenness that we experience. And I think that's what's happening both in the church 
and in our Western culture. But here is what I want you to see from Jeremiah 29. Every, every time of judgment, in every moment of judgment, if that is, is what we are experiencing, it's always, there's always grace. It's always to produce new life and new fruit in God's people. God is graciously working to wake us up, both the believers and unbelievers in our world today, I believe, to see our need for him, to humble us toward repentance, that we might seek him with a whole heart, that we might really come to believe that life can't be found anywhere else but in Yahweh, the creator, and that same creator is a redeemer. That's the point of this chapter. Things haven't gone well for you, Judah. <laughs> Look where you are. Wake up. Settle in. Trust me. Live for me. Seek me, and you'll find me. Turn to me, and you'll receive the promise. Stop striving and fighting. Stop clawing and raging. You're going to exhaust yourself trying to find a more desirable future for your life or for your nation on your own. Hear my promise and turn to me. I want you to hear the promise one more time. Look back at verse 10 and 11. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I just want you to, will you hear the gospel in this as we close? I will fulfill my promise to you, bring you back to this place. Will you hear Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Genesis 3.15 there. I will bring you back to this place of shalom. I will fulfill my promise to you. I will crush the head of a serpent through the seed of a woman. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. I have plans for you of shalom and wholeness, of forgiveness and redemption. Will you see the person and work of Jesus Christ there? Will you see it? That's been God's plan for the world from the beginning that God would set us right, would make us right, would give us peace and wholeness, forgiveness and redemption by taking our death and our sin upon himself, restoring us to God, to one another, and through us to restore all things, to hold out the gospel through us, the good news through us. Finally, he says, plans to give you a future and a hope. Would you hear the new city there? The promise of a new Jerusalem that will come upon the return of Christ. What a promise what a promise we have as God's people living in our day. Church, I want to exhort you this morning, whatever disappointments you are facing, whatever discouragements that there are in your life, whatever hardships or unknowns, whatever anxiety or fear or anger, would you hear God's word this morning? Would you settle in and trust him? Would you settle in and would you just live for him right now? Trust him, live for him, bear his fruit for his glory and for the good of others. And would you seek him with your whole heart? Would you give up on, repent of, turn from all other things that have captured your heart? Would you turn back to God? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your promise, for the future and the hope that you've given us in Jesus Christ. That you so loved this world that you sent your only son into this world and he did not despise the cross, but he took it on our behalf. You lived the life that we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserve. You rose victoriously. You conquered sin, death, and Satan. And you offer us new life. You offer us forgiveness and wholeness. You offer us shalom through your son. Thank you, God. Praise be to you for what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a people who trust the bottom line that in our day, 
We trust, God, that you are risen and reigning, that you are ruling, that you are sovereign, that we can entrust our lives to you, and that we would live for you, Lord, that we would seek you with a whole heart, that we would find you. We do pray that you would renew us, God. Would you renew this church? Would you renew your church in this country? Thank you for what you're doing all over the globe and other parts of the world through a church that's on fire, a church that's seeking you wholeheartedly, thriving. We pray that you would do a new work here in this country. We pray that you would do a new work through us. Lord, we don't want to be apathetic, spiritually sleepy, divided-hearted people. We need your grace. Turn us back towards you, Lord. Help us to seek you that we might find you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.